RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 348, Sons of Moog. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we explore the morals, meanings, and messages, and choices, or lack thereof, contained within each and every episode of Star Trek. This week, the Sons of Moog, the one where we're reunited with the, uh, the Sons of Moog. Hey, it's Moog Sons. It's those, those scrappy Moog boys. Norman, they're back. Those, those irascible Moog boys. Good to see you know them be- again. A completely different show right now What's if that? they actually did something called the Daughters of Moog. But those would be the Daughters of Doros. Yes, correct? yes, yes. We got to know them for a while, but uh, too bad no more of them. You know what the Daughters of Doros did that I'm What's, going to do for you right now is what? that they were really good at isolating subspace carrier waves <gasps> so, that, so that they can penetrate uh, the shields of the Enterprise D. But for your sake, we are going to penetrate your subspace carrier waves to let you know how you can contact us here on Mission Log. If you'd like to chat with us, please contact us through these subspace penetrating frequencies. Mission Log Pod is where you can find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you would like to leave us a voicemail, call us at 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Now, at this time, because I still have the choice to make my own decisions before anyone else decides to rewrite my brain and choose them for me, I choose for all of us now to listen to John Champion for this week's trivia. Well, thank you, Norman. I, I think you might be you might be indicating the direction of the conversation this week. Very, very interested to see where that goes. But before we get there, trivia for Sons of Moog. Well, this episode was written by Ronald D. Moore. Shouldn't be a surprise there. Of course, Ron is the sort of go-to Klingon guy for Star Trek at this point in production. Has been for a while, really. We most recently discussed an episode that he got the story credit for. That would be Paradise Lost. It's interesting that for this one, he had originally played with a very different dramatic arc in which Worf's decision to do or not to do the Mok Tovor was actually what took us through the whole episode. He and Ira and others on the staff felt that it was much more dramatic to have the scene actually happen early on and then deal with the repercussions. This episode was directed by David Livingston, familiar name there, of course. He is the director who has directed, to date, more Star Trek than anyone else. Now, most recently, we talked about his episode, Homefront. Interesting note, today, as of the recording of our podcast, uh, David is very active on Instagram. I encourage everyone to follow him at at still underscore lives underscore project. Very much a handle with uh, a socially activist bent to it as he has been documenting the homeless plight in Los Angeles. So you can follow his work there again, Instagram at still underscore lives underscore project. A note here about props. Now, we've seen the mech left before, but we know that friend of the show Dan Curry, who is a martial arts expert, was responsible for the bat left. It was Michael Dorn, though, who asked for a new smaller weapon. Dan showed him some ideas based on real-world swords, and he happened to like a Himalayan style for inspiration. Dan made a prototype out of cardboard, and the finals were made out of aluminum for shots distant from another actor, and rubber where actors would be in close combat. Let's talk about guest stars. We meet a Boslick captain played by Del Yount. Like many DS9 actors, Del has an equally strong background in theater as well as film and television. He appeared in the national Broadway tour of The Mystery of Edwin Drood and teaches theater for actors. TV appearances range from Cop Rock to Coach to Buffy to ER. We will see him once more in a different role on Enterprise. There's a Klingon lieutenant who finds himself on the wrong end of Kern's disruptor. 
That role is played by Elliot Woods. Indiana-born Elliot stands at 6'4", and had planned on playing pro basketball, but had an injury early on that forced him to change those plans. He went into acting and got his start in the 90s with TV guest roles, this episode being pretty early among them. We've seen him without all the makeup on in a bit role as a Starfleet officer in the movie Insurrection, and we'll see him in a different alien role on Enterprise. We meet an older Klingon named Nogra, played by Robert Doki. You may not recognize Robert here under the Klingon forehead, but you have almost certainly seen him before. He's very recognizable as Sergeant Reed in the three original Robocop movies. He also starred alongside Pam Greer in Coffee in 1973. He's had so many impressive TV and film roles, starting way back with The Outer Limits in 1964, Along the way, he made appearances on The Man from Uncle, The Six Million Dollar Man, the criminally overlooked series called It's Your Move, and he even appeared on Kolchak, The Night Stalker. Honestly, there are so many. He even shares a special Golden Globe Award for the cast of Robert Altman's Shortcuts. Sadly, we lost Robert in 2008 at the age of 73. Finally, we get to welcome back Candyman himself. Oh, 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 wait, not just Candyman. How about the older Jake Sisko himself back this week as Kern? It's Tony Todd. I only have one note here, John, when it comes to, to Tony Todd. The two episodes that have really hit the heartstrings for me, both mm-hmm. emotionally and thinking about the content of a Deep Space Nine episode, they yeah. both, they both feature Tony Todd. It's his strength, man. It plays to his strength, and I'm glad to have him back. Move over, fabulous Baker boys. The Moog boys have come to town, and trouble is riding in right behind them. Prologue. In this corner with a mechleth, it's Worf. In this corner with a batleth, it's Dax. Fortunately, it's just a little sparring match in the hollow suite. Worf wins, though he says he thinks Dax was trying to distract him with her outfit. Before the cringe and discomfort can get really out of hand, though, Odo calls with a request for Worf to come greet the drunk Klingon who has just boarded the station. It's not just any drunk Klingon, though. It's family day, because this is Worf's brother, Kern. He's dropped by for a visit because he wants Worf to kill him. Act 1. Yeah, you heard that right. Once Kern sleeps off his inebriation, he confronts Worf about what he's done. Namely, here's Worf and Starfleet, objecting to Galron's invasion of the Gamma Quadrant, and now that has brought shame and dishonor on the House of Moog. Kern no longer has his seat on the Council, and he does indeed want Worf to kill him. In this way, through the ritual of Moktuvor, Kern can die with honor. Elsewhere, Kira and Chief O'Brien are heading back to DS9 after a tour of the outer Bajoran colonies. Then, out of nowhere, an explosion in space. There's no ship, no reason for it. It just happens. When they proceed in their runabout to get closer, a Klingon ship decloaks and warns them off, saying it was just military exercises. Get out or else. So they go back to DS9 after running a few more scans. In Quark's bar, Dax is looking for Worf. He's late for their next sparring match, but Quark says he was just there earlier looking for some kind of Klingon incense. It sounds familiar to Dax, but she's not quite sure why. Cut to Worf, holding an incense burner in front of Kern. He's saying that Kern has been wronged in this life. There is no honor and no future, no future, no future for you. As this ritual is playing out, Dax's suspicions are growing. She finds Odo on the promenade, and with the help of the computer, they locate Worf and Kern in Worf's quarters. They're too late, though. Worf has plunged his dagger into Kern's heart, and his brother thuds to the floor. Odo forces Worf aside, while Dax emergency transports herself and Kern to the infirmary. If he dies, Odo tells Worf, he will be charged with murder. Act 2. So Captain Sisko is totally cool with all of this? No, he is definitely not cool with all of this. Worf attempted to murder his brother, 
And there he is standing in a Starfleet uniform. Sisko's tolerance of cultural difference only goes so far. Fortunately, Dr. Bashir says Kern will make it, but that means Worf had better find another way to deal with this. Dismissed. Now, about that explosion in space, nobody is really sure what to make of it, so Sisko orders Kira and O'Brien to go back out, this time in the Defiant, and poke around. If they run into more Klingons, just say they're doing some exercises. And yes, this is a Klingon issue, but no, they are not to take Worf with them. Let's check in on Kern. He's not what you might call happy to be alive. He's disappointed to not be in Stovacor with his father. In fact, he's even more disappointed in Worf now, who didn't threaten to kill Odo or Dax when they interrupted the ritual. With Kern feeling more lost now than ever, he leaves it to Worf to fix this. Dax is sympathetic. She knows Klingon culture. But even Worf says that he knows she was following her conscience. He confides in her, though, that he doesn't know what to do next. Kern can stay on DS9, but do what? How about a job in security? Odo is actually receptive to the idea, and it means Worf then will owe him a favor at some point. All the better. Act 3. Day 1 on the new job, and Kern is actually doing pretty well. Odo likes his style, sternly looking over the shipping manifest of a Boslik crew at the station. Kern tells Worf, though, that some of this transition is going to be harder to get used to. Like the security uniform, for starters. It's uncomfortable, just not his style at all. Regardless, he'll do his job, and he'll get used to it. O'Brien and Kira are having some success finding what they're after in Bajoran space, when yet another of those mysterious explosions pops up, and this time a cloaked Klingon cruiser, the Drovana, appears in its wake, very badly damaged. At first, the Klingon captain declines the offer for help, but eventually comes back saying they need medical attention. The best Defiant can do is tow them back to DS9. Speaking of medical help, look who's back in the infirmary again. It's Kern! Sure, the security job was going well for a short time. Then, according to Odo, Kern let himself get shot by the Boslik captain whose cargo he was screening. Really, it should have never happened, but Kern let himself get shot. Again, he'll be okay, but Odo says a man with a death wish is dangerous to himself and the others around him. He can't keep his new job. In goes Worf to see his brother. It's more of the same. Kern is at the end of his rope, and he just asks Worf to tell him what to do. Act 4. By examining the towed Dravana and the injured crew, the DS9 senior staff deduced that those random explosions were actually mines, Mines that are being laid by the Klingons, a clear act of war. So what do they do? They can't find the mines on their own. They would need some set of coordinates until Worf hatches a cunning plan. He and Kern will disguise themselves and board the Dravana to steal the information. Kern buys into this plan about like one would expect. He hates it. Until, that is, Worf lays out a good reason. Gowron is sowing the seeds of war with the Federation, and breaking the treaty is something Kern opposed anyway. If they don't prevent this, a war is inevitable, and the Federation may very well win. That will be the end of the Klingon Empire, and they have a chance now to prevent that from happening. Bashir does his magic, cosmetically and genetically disguising Worf and Kern enough to slip onto the Dravana. There they find the defense computer with a database of mine coordinates, but as they prepare to capture the data, a Klingon officer walks in on them, asking why they are there. Act 5. Of course, Worf and Kern try to bluff their way through this young lieutenant's interrogation. It works, too. He even offers to help them. But Kern turns and shoots the lieutenant to Worf's shock. Kern points out that the lieutenant had a hidden dagger in his hand and was ready to kill Worf. The mission is complete, they have the mine coordinates, but Kern is feeling only more dishonored that he killed a warrior who was doing his duty to protect the Empire. Worf is disappointed in himself that he lost the instinct to tell that the guard was going to try to kill him anyway. It's concerning to Worf, 
In this moment, he feels like he's truly lost a part of being Klingon, but at least he has his identity within Starfleet. Kern has nothing. There will be no time that the House of Moog will be restored in the Empire, and Kern himself feels that he has betrayed it anyway. Worf confesses all this to Dax, who says it sounds like he's thinking of the Moktuvar again. But Worf says no. It's not a ritual, it's murder. To which she says maybe there's a way to kill Kern without killing him. Oh, but you have to wait a minute to find out what that is, because somewhere out there, the Defiant is in pursuit of mines. Not not mimes, though that would be fun too. Mines, as in the explodey things in space. As expected, the Klingon ships are cloaked, and nobody makes a peep when Kira opens a channel to warn them. Very well. With the transmission of a few codes, the Defiant is able to start blowing up mines all around, and sure enough, the cloaked ships that were hiding start to speed back home to the Klingon Empire. Okay, so back to Kern. He's drunk, he's contemplating suicide, when Worf finds him in his quarters. But suicide is considered dishonorable. Before he passes out, Kern tells Worf that his only regret is that the sons of Moog weren't raised together, but that in his way, he sees that Worf is an honorable man. And then he passes out. In the infirmary, Bashir explains the procedure about to take place. He'll erase Kern's memories, save for language and some other basics, and change his genetic code enough, give him a little plastic surgery that he'll be Klingon, but not Kern. Later, an old Klingon, Nogra, who was friends with Moog, is telling Rodek to wake up. It's Kern's eyes, but he's different. He says he doesn't remember anything, and Nogra explains that he was in a shuttle accident and was hit by a plasma discharge. Bashir even steps in and says it's a bad case of amnesia, but Nogra takes his son and says he's part of a small but proud Klingon family, and he'll teach him everything he has forgotten. On the way out of the infirmary, Rodak passes Worf and asks who he is. Worf says his name, and Rodak wants to know if they're related. Worf says simply that he has no family. The end. You know, in, in keeping with the traditions of Mission Log, when two things came up immediately when you said the word minds and then mimes. <laughs> yes. First... I love that it just re- completely reminds me of the scene where Captain Peter Quincy Taggart says that what you fail to realize is that I'm dragging mines, and he's dragging mines behind the NESA protector to kill the enemy ships. <laughs> yes, yes. And the other one is John Rhys Davies saying, and they call it a mine in Lord yeah. of the Rings. A mine! <laughs> <laughs> nice. I don't know why, but it just kind of it just struck that funny bone that way. Very good. Nice. You know, John, uh, this whole episode reminds me of one of my favorite songs by Rush. Uh, I've, I've said okay. this many times on, on the show that I'm a fan of the Rush, um, the band Rush. And oh, yeah. there's a song called Free Will. Mm-hmm. And there are two specific lyrics that, um, that come to mind when hearing about uh, basically current choices or lack thereof. And one is, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice, followed by... I will choose a path that's clear. I will choose free will. Yes. Yeah. I like that song a lot. I I, I like those uh, lyric choices from that. Uh, Perfect. Very apt for today's discussion. And before we get into the depths of either Sons of Moog or Rush, which we we go either way, um, can I just, can I point out that Worf is still the worst dad in Star Trek? I mean, look, maybe maybe he's second to Sarek, but he's actually a terrible son in this, too. I have no family. I, You know, the Rajinkos <laughs> would like a letter every now and then. They yeah. would like an email, maybe a picture to see how you're doing. Oh, and what's the... Oh, there, there was a short, like a smaller Klingon who was around. Uh, Andrew. A- Andrew. Andy. Andy. Alfonso. Uh, Al something. Uh, uh, Altovis. Albert. Uh, Albert. Uh, That's it. Worf, Worf, you have a kid. You have a kid. And you have parents who love you very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. It's odd that, I mean, I know the writers, especially Ronald D. Moore, yeah. who knows Klingon lore and obviously Worf's history, just summarily glosses over that 
It's you know, like or, they go out of their way <laughs> to yeah. just bury Alexander. I mean, he is, it's such a retcon yeah. in the in their own series. Like, uh, yeah, just put him over there. Yeah. You could well, have even had Kern say something about how their family is split up. And like, you know, you even have your son living on Earth with the Rijinkos. I mean, mm-hmm. it, just to acknowledge, like, yes, he exists. It's... It's a little disturbing, that's all. It's strange to me. Yeah. You know, yeah, and at the beginning, I know that with with all due respect to Dan Curry, all due respect. <laughs> yes. I you know that I've said this before. I think the <laughs> I think the Batleth is a terrible weapon. Yes. A, it's especially especially fighting in and out of caves because you're literally hunk, hunkering down trying to walk through these very small close quarters tunnels. And you're trying to swing a sword literally your own height. So it doesn't really work. And wow, those things are really terribly made. If you can insert like a screwdriver in between the, the grips and snap it in half like he did with yeah, his mech lath. Right. Yeah. And like, wow, Klingon forging, not what it used to be. Hey, you can take both of them. There's, uh, there's no match for a good blaster at your side. Or a good solid club. <laughs> right. Yep. Or a hand phaser. Yeah. So, so uh, there's an intoxicated Klingon, which literally should be the Deep Space Nine version of It Was a Dark and Stormy Night. Yes. every Klingon story starts with, there's a drunken Klingon at Quark's. They're <laughs> always drunk. <laughs> They're always showing up drunk. I, love, I loved it with Kor. Yeah. yeah. But that's but what that, I mean, though, right? Yeah. That, that's just the way... <laughs> That'll be our entry point to every Klingon story. Blood wine should be banned from Deep Space Nine. Yeah, you know, or Truly. just or or try and at least filter that out during the transporter. System. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a weird thing that I that I saw, and they used it twice in this episode. But whatever happened to that really awesome ceremonial Klingon dagger? You know, the one that everyone in in um, uh, the one that killed David Marcus. Yeah. Yes, like the one killed David Marcus, but at the yeah. beginning with when Worf was introduced and then they all cut their hands with it to show yeah. that they weren't changelings. I mean, that obviously that's a ceremonial deck. I mean, it means something. It's their personal sidearm. Right. So why do they use kind of like this corkscrew dagger? Yeah, I was surprised to not see the traditional Klingon dagger. Now, I, I did. I left it out of the trivia, but since you brought up daggers, I, I, it was interesting to read that John Eves design the Moktovar dagger that we see mm-hmm. here and, and actually put a little thought and kind of mythology into it. It's a split blade. Right. And the way he described it was one blade was to kill the the person. The other blade was to, quote, you know, release the soul into the next life. Mm-hmm. So I, I like the thought process behind it. Maybe, just maybe, and, and I'm just making this up out of whole cloth, uh, they felt like that was such a dramatic prop that if you had another dramatic prop in there at the beginning with uh, with Kern, it just would have taken away from that. It's like, okay, just give him something kind of dumbed down, just a regular dagger. Let's really focus on the one for the Moktavar. That makes sense. Yeah, you you don't want to bury the lead. Right? Yeah, right. In a way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> bury the lead. Get what? it? <laughs> Boom. <What>? <laughs> That's terrible. That's terrible. I'll be here all night. Please tip your waitress. <laughs> Speaking of tips, uh, yes, <laughs> the dagger again. Sorry, uh-huh. dun, dun, dun. Uh, so is Aldebaran whiskey? So it's green. Yeah, we see it, that it's as, green. It's green. It's like we see yeah. that as the hangover cure. So is that technically called the hair of the targ? Ooh, nice. I like that hair of the targ. Well I'm done, Norman. Mm. You get plus two on mission log this week. Listen, great makeup on Kern. When we we're talking about that scene with the that dagger going into his chest it it's a really well shot scene it's dramatic without being gory mm-hmm. i thought it was just handled very well and do you remember i can't remember if this was a fan created piece of art or if it was a licensed piece of art but years ago there was that poster of like klingon anatomy and kind of showing a warrior almost like the the visible man or visible woman model kit from oh, back sure, in the sure. day yeah. yeah and it would show and you know they had the ridges and this really interesting uh rib cage structure that's literally like a cage it was cool and just seeing that shot of kern getting stabbed and the great makeup job on his yeah. chest reminded me of that yeah that was really nice scene that was a yeah. really nice scene and yeah 
obviously very symbolic, but yeah, it was very much kind of like the Vitruvian man type poster. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Da Vinci's mm-hmm. famous illustration of a uh, yeah. male anatomy or anatomy in general. Yeah. Uh, speaking of anatomy, I loved Dax's training jumpsuit. Yes. And me too. Not the first one, not the, with the plunging yep. neckline that went yep. to, to, and I don't know. I thought it was a little bit of a sexist line when Worf's like, you know, you were trying to, you know, beguile me with your female wares. That's why oh, you're you dressed think? that way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Just, <laughs> <laughs> the, the glistening V-neck line and everything. Uh, right. I, I get that, right? And uh, yeah. like I said, no offense to uh, Terry Farrell. I was mm-hmm. uh, distracted as well. Yep. But I really like the second one that she was wearing. It was just very well-tailored. With with you and food, it's me and props and costumes. Like, you know, it's it's well-tailored, really understated. But I can see myself walking around in that at cosplay at a convention. Yeah, no, it was super cool, and it, it had a very like classic science fiction look mm-hmm. without being costumey. It, it's the kind of thing that you would see in like seventies or eighties sci-fi, uh, but well designed, really well made. I thought that was cool. I'm glad you pointed that out. Modern uh, Kotor is actually trending a lot towards what we've seen before, and this was like twenty five, thirty years ago in yeah. science fiction, let alone yeah, just yeah. Kotor. Look, I'm just always glad to see science fiction costuming that looks like real clothes and taking it a step beyond instead of what Star Trek and what a lot of shows do often is you go far, far, far into the future, you visit an alien culture, and they're all wearing togas. You know, they're all wearing like robes and these medieval looking things like, no, 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 no. You just raided a costume department and just found whatever you could find. How dare you disparage Plato's stepchildren, John? How dare you? (laughs) Okay. They they, they justified it there. They had an excuse there. Um, I know that on our show, I have said things about Avery's acting before. It doesn't always land with me. I have to say that I think Cisco yelling at Worf and Dax is among my favorite Cisco scenes so far. I thought it was great. I mean, they, they played everything to the top because, of course, they did. But it was it was written well. It was tight. The reactions were great. He was perfect in it. And what it he nice said thing. really resonates, and we'll discuss that later. Yep, 100%. Yeah. Um, also an interesting little uh, exchange of dialogue. Uh, Worth says to Odo, I am indebted to you. And Worth says, yes, you are. And you will find him a man who collects on his debts. Wow. I mean, just when you think that from one week to another, you're seeing this sort of softer side of Odo or this, this growth out of Odo. Like, no. <laughs> He's right. going to take it out of you. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. I mean, I think that what Odo learned from... Crossfire is that it's better for me just to be Odo than anything else. Yeah. 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 At least people can, they can depend on that, especially himself. Yep. You know, what was really uncomfortable to see was Kern in a Bajoran utility uniform that just, it just rubbed me so many wrong ways. And I'm sure it did Kern as well. Yeah, do you think that they just had that laying around, or did they have to go to Garrick and they were like, okay, we need a new uniform, but it's got to be huge. <laughs> you know? Garrick would it do is... that, that familiar blinking look like, I don't have that kind of cloth. Yeah, right. Ever. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because why would he? Oh, uh, the, the scene where they're uh, tracking down those cloaked ships, um, I, I forgot, I, maybe it's Kira who says, even Klingon torpedoes can't track vessels that are cloaked. I'm sorry, Norman, weren't we just talking about this very recently? I mean, in Star Trek VI, they shot a photon torpedo right up Chang's tailpipe. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry, that, that line probably didn't come out exactly the way it should have. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, that, that uh, in the timeline, that would have been like 100 years ago. And, you know, we, that great scene of Spock and McCoy down on the torpedo tube putting together a torpedo with a, a gaseous anomaly detector mm-hmm. to just blow up that sh- Yeah. So how, had, how we forget, how soon we yeah. forget. We've had many conversations recently about technology that hasn't really, unlike our show, unlike mm-hmm. Mission Log, has not withstood the test of time. <laughs> right. Yeah, yes, exactly. Get back to us in 100 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Boy, there's that uh, line a couple of times here where Bashir says, uh, here, this will temporarily alter your DNA signature. I, I, I mean, look, I, I love a good bit of throwaway technobabble. 
But man, I, they love doing this on Star Trek. They say, oh, we're just going to change your DNA. We're just going to do a thing that would actually kill you. Okay? All right. And, again, and same thing with Bashir just changing Kern's genetic coding. You know, that, that thing that then would kill the patient. <laughs> so, but I guess, yeah, yeah, six and one, half dozen, the other. But it's a weird thing, though. Like, why would you need to alter a Klingon's DNA just in order for them to not pass as Klingons? You know? Well, no, they, they are passing as Klingons, just different Klingons. Right. I know. So, yeah. But you would think that they would have something a little bit more ingenious, like some type of... Because they were doing handprint scanning yeah, you know, to get right. through doors. So right. why not just... Get someone's hand. Right. They're Klingons. <laughs> yeah, just take a hand. That's exactly. what you do. Beam That's on. I mean, do. when when, uh, when Kira and uh, who was it? Kira and Gower on uh, Goldacott when they when they boarded that ship uh, mm-hmm. in Return to Grace, they did far more damage. Neither of them being Klingon to a Klingon ship in an actual battle. Yeah, yeah. So you would For think real. that with a mechleth, you would chop off somebody's hand and use that. I mean, they're Klingons. This is what Klingons do. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. It's, it's very non-technological, but extremely efficient and within their cultural, I guess, <laughs> theme to do so. Right. Speaking of, though, uh, cultural themes, I really like that Tony Todd took that moment of just kind of examining himself in the Klingon uniform again. Like... Oh yeah, I remember this. This feels good. You know, he's, yeah. on, he's on the sick bay bed, yes. and he's like, "Oh yeah, 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 yeah. This was good. I remember TNG. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this, this feels right. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is a nice. It's a well played moment. Oh, I, I, I would say they, they have that. Uh, they mentioned that security technique on the Klingon ship of having the false database on top of the real database. I just personally, I would be terrible with that Klingon security procedure. I, I would be awful. I, it reminds me of like whenever I had friends who would set every clock in the house ahead by 15 minutes because they were afraid of being late. <laughs> because then all I would do, I would just go ask, but now wait a minute, is it is that the time really? Or, or is this the false time and we need to calculate the real time? Because from now on in my head, I'm just going to constantly be calculating the real time. I would blow their cover immediately on a Klingon ship. Terrible, terrible with that. And uh, just one final thing. I mean, I'm glad that at the end of the episode, Nogra is totally cool with the plan. In very short order, uh, Bashir says it's going to take about six hours to uh, to, to fix, quote-unquote, fix Kern. But for Nogra, that must have been a very interesting email that he got from Worf. I, in my head, I'm just like, hi, Nogra. Uh, wow, it's been a long time since we've talked. I'm currently serving aboard DS9. And by the way, do you remember my brother Kern? Well, we're erasing his memory, and he's going to need a totally new identity, a new family, a job of some sort, basically everything. Can you help us out? Best wishes, Mogson Wharf. Small favors to ask, really. Oh, and this wasn't the same person in Way of the Warrior. Remember that one person, that one captain that Worf had drinks with because he was friends of his father? Oh, yeah. Because he yeah, wanted yeah, to get yeah, security yeah. information. Right. It would have right. been neat if that Klingon was this Klingon. That would be cool. Yes. Right? So you would just continue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Just the good old Moog boys, never meaning no harm, beats all you ever saw. Been in trouble with Starfleet law since the day they were born. How much trouble? I think Norman and John are about to tell us. Well, Norman, I mean, fortunately, this is just a very light episode that we can kind of skip through without any major discussion or points to be had, right? This was the feel-good episode so far <laughs> of the season. <laughs> not if your name is Kern. Um, no, not at all. Yeah, uh, man, I, there's so many ways to go with this. So I, I think the only thing that I can do is just sort of dive in. And, and I, I, even my first note, which is a heavy one, I don't think is really even the, the most important point of the episode. But there's something in here that is um, an undercurrent of everything that's going on. 
Kern's wish to die and to go to Stovokor, and he and Worf having these essentially theological conversations about here's how you get to Stovokor, here's how you don't get to Stovokor, here's what happens if you end up in the uh, Klingon underworld. And conversations like that tend to drive me a little crazy. It's interesting for me to see as an outsider, and particularly when you put in the alien context of Star Trek and the alien context of Klingons. But I'm sitting there watching it thinking this this is what drives me insane about belief in an afterlife is that you can justify death in so many ways and you can justify the deaths of others and even your own death. It's sort of adding this layer of surreality almost on top of the reality of what's going on. Now, look, all that said, I believe in the right to die. I truly do. I just think that you have to find the correct and ethical justification. And those ethical justifications don't just simply come easy. They don't simply say, well, you know, I, I just feel like I want to die. I feel like somebody else is better off if we honor their decision to die. I think it's a much more complex and and heart-wrenching conversation than that. I'm not convinced that Kern's reason was justified when he mm -hmm. shows up on DS9. He is profoundly sad. He is profoundly dishonored. He has lost his job. He's lost his position. He's lost his possessions. He's lost everything. All of those are terrible. And I might just be looking at this from my human point of view, but I also like to think that from my human point of view, I would see somebody who needs help and who might be able to be treated and I wondered about, look, maybe this is the kind of thing that you could do in a novel and not on a TV show. What about addressing mental health? I realize that Klingons are a different culture. They're a different species. They have different standards and different rules. But I also have to point this out because, A, I'm human, and B, Star Trek is, again, a fictional show that uses alien species as a stand-in for the human condition. So mm -hmm. that that's how I kept seeing this is, wow, yeah, he can show up with this idea, but where's the intervention to say, no, 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 this isn't the way you go about this. I think one of the biggest problems uh, with this episode, I think for both of us, if, if I may speak yeah. uh, to, to some of your sentiments earlier, we do not get a sense of how powerful Kern's decision really is because they don't take the time, they being the writers, mm -hmm. and all credit to Ronald D. Moore for writing this episode and, and giving us a very strong topic to talk about. But they did not take that next step, that next emotional level to really explain why Kern felt like he had no way out aside from the Muktavor. Mm -hmm. Because if there were scenes showing how literally destroyed his entire life was because of Worf's decision, not his decision, Yeah. then I think that we would feel like, you know what? He's got a point because he did nothing wrong. Yeah. Yet his entire life was destroyed because Worf made a selfish choice that was explained to nobody in his family because yeah. Worf admits he has no family. <laughs> right. 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 So what this is really doing, it's pointing out how ridiculously selfish Worf is. Yeah. It's all about me, my feelings, my legacy, my honor, my career. Yeah. Right? Yeah. His brother was ruined because of his decision. Yeah. And Worf gives no damn about it. Right. Right? And I'm sorry. I know that the Klingon fans out there are probably going to take issue with me, but there is nothing in this episode that proves the contrary to that. <laughs> yeah. Right? I, I do not disagree with you there. No. Uh, and again, I could belabor that point, but I just really want to say that if the Mok Tavor as a Klingon custom and one that's apparently approached as a means of restoring honor, mm -hmm. right, to which supposedly a Klingon values that trait highest above all else, then what right does anyone on the station, including Worf, have from granting his brother that cultural right to restore the greatest, 
the greatest trait in the Klingon culture to him? Uh, because they're standing on DS9. They're not standing on Kronos. I think Cisco is completely within his right to say, you can't do that here. You are standing on Deep Space Nine. It is under my command. We have the standards of, it's not purely Starfleet, but it's Federation-ish. It is Bajoran-ish. You're not standing on Kronos. Mm -hmm. If you're standing on Kronos and you're held by the laws and traditions that are there, I have no say over what you do. But I think about a, a real-world example. There are cultures in the world where what we would call murder might be called something, oh, less dramatic, like a mercy killing, mm -hmm. which to us would be horrendous and awful. But if that person who has that deeply held cultural, spiritual, religious, social belief is standing in a country that does not accept that, they're committing a murder if they were to carry that out. And again, as reprehensible, as horrible as we might that find that, they're within their legal rights to do so in other parts of the world. And our, our supposed cultural relativism about it, from the comfort of being here with our own set of laws, I think we can and should express how terrible that is, or how we disagree with those policies. But again, in another place, in another country bound by different laws, they might have the right to do that. Standing here, they would not. I see where we're getting at with that. But because of, of, of how a lot of Deep Space Nine's examples are fresh in my memory, I feel that they're using what Cisco's saying here to define too heavy of a point where he was a little bit more ambiguous of something similar. Let's take Rejoined, for example. He knows what would happen if Dax and Lenara got together. He knows that they would be exiled from Trill culture, which would constitute death to the Trill. Symbiote. He knows that. Mm. And he tries to talk. He tries to talk Dax out of it. He flat out just says, this is a Federation sh uh, station. You are not doing this stuff on my station, period, without question. Yeah. A little different, don't you think? The tactics are different because... Yeah. Uh, the, okay. The tactics are different. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm also thinking about Blood Oath, mm -hmm. where you know you have the the three old Klingons who show up and say to Dax, "Hey, we're going to go kill the albino Klingon. Come with us. This will be great." Right. And it's a little bit of this wishy-washy. Uh, Cisco, like, well, I can't really tell you what to do, but he can though. Yeah. <laughs> I that's the thing. Like, well, it, it, but is it just a different thing when it's Dax? It's that's my point. It, my point yeah, is, is that yeah, yeah, Cisco yeah. is using this. Uh, he's he's playing favorites in a way, you know. Yeah. You know, and and I, to, basically, what I'm saying is that what Cisco says is that if you do this, I'm going to strip you of your Starfleet uniform. I'm going to strip you of your rights as a Federation officer, and then you can be a Klingon again. But yeah. but you're trying to walk this fine line between two cultures. The same thing with Dax. I mean, she basically went and and asked Cisco, "I'm going to assassinate this Klingon albino with my three blood brothers." Fine, yeah. you do that. Go be a Klingon because obviously that's more important to you than upholding the authority of the Federation. Because once you do that, you are literally wearing a Federation badge as a Federation officer and representative, and you are committing murder. Based on cultural yeah. appropriation, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, uh, look, I, I want to move on to something <laughs> that is because uh, this is a thing that that we could debate for the uh, for the next hour. I, I want to move on to something that is equally, if not more, important here, mm -hmm. which is really what this comes down to: the ethics of deciding to erase someone's identity because it's for his own good. There's no consent, first of all. And, and on top of that, I don't know that there's really a truly good way to maintain this ruse, no matter how much you try. I just, I can't believe that everyone is okay with this plan. You, you got Bashir, you got the lab technicians, you got the other Klingons. You got anyone else on DS9 who sees this new Klingon just walking around and then leaving them. You've got Cisco who has every right to say, hey, uh, wait, what, what happened to, oh, what was his name? Kern, your brother? Didn't we just have a problem with him? Mm -hmm. I find that to be shocking. 
Now, I, I do have to ask, is it more ethical to let someone or, or almost force someone to live who doesn't want to live or just to keep this shell of a person alive? I mean, for whose benefit? Mm -hmm. he, he's not the same person. Kern is gone by all intents. And what we've created is, is this, this shell, this, this Frankenstein's monster of a person who had no say in it. I'm, I'm stunned and shocked by the decision that was made on what to do in this episode. Okay, folks, take a deep breath, because this is, <laughs> because this is where I really take a lot of exception with this episode. And at, at first, to be honest with you, John, at first I thought this was just going to be Worst Brother shows up, they do Klingon-y things, Tony Todd is amazing, and they do more Klingon-y things, and boom, done. Episode done. I, I thought so, too. Right? Honestly, going yeah. into this, I thought the same thing. Um, yeah. But when I really started to take a look, especially the choices that they were making for Kern, not Kern making choices for himself, I yeah. really took issue with this episode because in, in, in a lighter way, watching Kern get relegated to basically a dock worker wearing a Bajoran uniform, that in and of itself was reprehensible to who he is. It was humiliating. Humiliating. Yeah. Thank you. That's exactly yeah. the right word. Your word mm -hmm. is better. But now, and, and you said it very specifically, now without his consent, Dax and Bashir and Worf chose to do this to him, not for him. They, they literally eliminated Kern from existence. Yeah. And where I really took issue with this was one year before... Uh, this was an episode on Babylon 5 called Passing Through Gethsemane, maybe about hmm. six months before. A year before that episode was an episode called Quality of Mercy. In those two Babylon 5 episodes, they posed or posited the issue of the what they called the mind wipe or the death of personality. It was when a criminal was sentenced to death, but not sentenced to a physical death, sentenced to a death of their consciousness, of their personality, of their soul, if you will, yeah. and taken that shell of a body and given some other identity. That's exactly what's happening to Kern here. He is being basically con uh, condemned to the death of personality. And for what reason? And who has that right? And he didn't yeah. even choose that. He wanted the death of his physical and spiritual being to go to Stilvacor. Right? He was, he was trying to do the right thing by himself, regardless of if whether or not he had another option. But without his consent, after being passed out, you know, after drinking a ton and then getting put into sick bay and then wharf, and the, they, like, they all chose something he would never choose for himself. That would be a living yeah. death. Yeah. Yeah. Who? I, 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 I find it absolutely terrifying and horrible. I, I, <laughs> I have nothing else to add to that. I, I do think that there is a, a, an interesting thing here that we have this example of the allegiance to the code, to the, the, the deeply held belief, the, the law, the, the societal structure, the cultural structure, which sort of strips personal moral choice of its value. So I feel bad for Kern. Mm -hmm. I truly do. I, my my heart breaks for the position that Kern has found himself, and you just feel this this pathos uh, when Kern shows up. Right? Yeah. He thinks that everything that he does violates this code, the Klingon sense of honor. When actually, what he's doing, for example, like stealing the mine coordinates, is the moral, ethical thing to do. Worf gets it. He knows that doing what is moral isn't something that you just get by direction or by decree from others. That the, the, the personal ability to sort out what is ethical and what is moral actually trumps what comes down by decree. I, I, feel, I feel a great deal of sympathy for both characters. I feel badly that Worf senses that he has lost a piece of his identity, but every step of the way, 
with the exception of erasing his brother's memory, (laughs) Worf has tried to make good, ethical, moral decisions that truly are for the greater good. This is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. When he he says, hey, the goods of the many is that we do not have a war between the Klingon Empire and the Federation. So it makes sense to, to risk our own lives to try to stop that from happening. I agree with that, and I think that's a really good point to balance out what was going on with Worf in one sense. But in the other sense, I just feel that somewhere along the line, they have a great, they being the writers of Deep Space Nine, have a great series Bible for what Klingon honor and Klingon culture should be. I just don't think that because they spent some, actually a fair amount of time fleshing out this situation with uh, the minefield and the Klingons and their, you know, and, and their kind of like strategic machinations that they didn't invest that time either in this episode or subsequent episodes prior to this to really make the stakes higher based on what Kern is proposing. And it's kind of like the whole personality, the personality issue with Kern. It was he was doing the right thing by him. It just was handled in a way that made Worf feel better about his own decisions. Again, it's another story that's so complex and so powerful that in the end, whose decisions were really honored and served, and I believe that Kearns were completely put to the wayside just to make sure that Worf felt good about being a Klingon again and a Starfleet officer. Mm. But that's not what Kern came to his help for, you know? Yeah, right. And now right. even Worf's like, I have no family. I have no, you know, his, his brother has been rewritten to a, basically a zombie. I think it's just the whole thing just really leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I'm sorry, listeners, but it really does. Ronald D. Mora, I love you, but I want to rewrite. Can those mission log boys find Macleths, morals, and meanings in the adventures of those Moog boys? Or will their insights wipe our brains? Stay tuned. As we do at the end of every mission log, we basically ask ourselves, did we have a choice? Did we have a choice in formulating the opinions and to come up with our own conclusions, and I would have to say unequivocally, yes. And I would love for you, John, to share the independent and non-influenced choices that you have made based on the Sons of Moog. All right, so uh, I loved this episode, but but I hate it. Uh, but I love it, uh, but I hate it. <laughs> so let, let me explain. Now, I, I kind of wish we didn't have the B plot that we have. It, it's actually, it's very interesting, but it easily gets overshadowed by what's happening with Kern. And, and I do like how there is a dovetail where they do fit together at a certain point. But honestly, I was so taken in by the Kern story that even when I watched it a second time, I, I just sort of was like, oh, yeah, there's the thing with the mines. Oh, yeah. Kira and O'Brien are off doing a thing because the thing that sat in my head about it was Kern. So the the other part was really a distraction. I mean, look, Tony Todd is magnificent. He He's an incredible, powerful actor. I enjoyed him in this episode probably even more because we just saw him in the tragic, sympathetic role of Jake Sisko in The Visitor. And he brought a different kind of tragedy to his performance here, and he's just magnetic to watch Mm -hmm. him. The problem for this episode, for me, is with the resolution, and I feel like really not taking the time to explore the decisions that are being made here really from the beginning. I I don't buy the memory wipe as the answer here, as the correct or ethical or moral answer here at all. I would rather, look, if I were to rewrite this, I would rather have seen something along the lines of like Kern volunteering for 
an impossible mission that saves the empire from going to war, or, or, or hey, just saving some other Klingons in order to get that glorious death that he wants. And, and maybe, maybe in some way Worf has to orchestrate it. I don't know. There are all kinds of things you could create there. I, I was struck by these interesting lines, like, you know, why is it that suicide is considered a dishonorable death, Worf? Shouldn't a warrior have the right to decide when his time has come? And he says, even if I got cast out into the underworld, at least I'd be with other Klingons. I thought these were all such interesting areas to explore, but we really didn't get the exploration that we could have. And maybe maybe this is one of those stories that could have been revisited more. Maybe mm-hmm. if we had more of Kern before. I don't know exactly what the answer is here, but there's something about this episode that absolutely draws me to it because it has performed so well. Tony Todd is so great. But if there are messages here, or even just in the plot, the resolution, I, it, it it drives me crazy. It really does. And I can't land on whether or not the episode holds up. Yeah, it's produced well, it's made well, it's acted well. What in the hell are they trying to say here? There's not a lot that I can add that would help you know, illustrate how I feel. I agree with every single thing you're saying here, John. I think the biggest issue with this episode is that it doesn't commit fully to the the larger narrative, which is what Kern is going through, the struggle that he's going through, and the the choices that are being taken away from him. All he wants to do in this episode is to die an honorable death and regain that glory in his culture. And I have a quote here that that pretty much you know illustrates that point. He was telling Worf. He says, your Federation life has claimed you again, and now it is claiming me as well. I have no life. I have no death. Whatever is to become of me is up to you. Right? So he is basically saying, I came to you for a purpose, and that purpose has been taken away. So I'm just going to say, Kalos, take the wheel. Right? (laughs) Yes. Yes. In a way. because. He never was given his ultimate fate. His rights were taken away from him, his right to choose how he wants to die. If he wanted to enter Stovacor, if somebody wanted to enter Heaven or Nirvana or Valhalla, who gives somebody else the right to take that away from them? Mm -hmm. And why? Uh, Whose memory or whose, whose needs or desires does that serve in the end? Obviously, it doesn't serve the person who wants that for themselves. So, and I understand, and I agree with your point about Cisco having to draw the line somewhere, but because it's been so inconsistently done with Bajoran religious beliefs, with, I guess, Trill symbiote beliefs, mm-hmm. why is it so that the Klingon belief of doing this is where Cisco finally wants to take that line in the sand? I, I, I think that there was, uh, well, look, I, I, I will still agree with Cisco's decision here, and, and maybe I disagree with uh, Cisco's decisions in those earlier examples that you pointed out. I, I wanted to see a better resolution to this problem. I think the resolution that they came up with is reprehensible. You've got, you've literally got a B plot where Klingons are dying by setting exploding traps all over this sector of space. And we couldn't figure out a better way to let Kern have the death that he wants to have. We let all yeah. these other Klingons have the death they want to have, you know, mm-hmm. we, even in, uh, in Blood Oath or wherever. Like, sure, yes, yes, we're going to let these Klingons die the way they think they should die, which is an honorable thing. And, and here we're just completely uh, stripping that away. And again, the, the issue that I have with this and most of the issues with uh, when they bring Klingons into the show is that I just don't feel a sense of consistency yeah. with their cultural system. They, it literally feels like whatever the story needs at the time becomes the Klingons' cultural way. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that that's... That's doing the Klingon culture any service. The Cardassian culture, very well streamlined, very well thought out, very consistent to this point. The same with the Bajoran culture. And I said this in The Way of the Warrior. I felt like their development as cultures and the way that they affect the storyline are being put on the shelf 
but now we're being it's being you know uh, superseded by this need to have the Klingons in there, but you don't feel like their culture has been completely mapped out with the same depth and detail as the other two. Yeah, and I think that's a real shame. Yeah. I just think that yeah. it could be better. It just could be better. Let Let's talk about some messages here. I think that, you know, for Worf, this is an interesting place in his overall arc. Uh, he resigns himself to the idea that he can't go home again. Uh, as for being in Starfleet, he says that it will have to be enough. And they've played with this idea. They played with it in TNG. But here they just they really put a nail in that coffin. And it, it's okay. You know, I, mm. we've said on Mission Log before that friends are the family you choose. Worf has a structure to go to. He has people that care about him. He has an ethical and moral system that works for him. This is a huge bump in that road. But he has this thing to go back to, which I think is not necessarily a message here, but it is an, an interesting place to land with Worf in this. Yeah, and, you know, I don't want to really belabor the point of, like, you know, who has the right, because obviously, in, in one sense, Kern did come to his older brother to seek his assistance in, in restoring his honor, and hopefully Worf would understand that. So there's, we've, we've really chewed up that part of this discussion. But the bigger discussion, I think, towards the end, and what the message is for me, it's the debate regarding body and soul, and what happens to the body after the personality or the soul has been erased. Yeah. That's uh, a huge issue that we, I don't think we have nearly enough time in the next 10 episodes to talk about. Well, well look, I mean, uh, no. this... Yeah, you're, you're hitting on two kind of different things that I, I think of. Uh, look, there is this ethical question about aiding or allowing someone to die if they ask for it. And, and what, what happens at that point? To me, stripping identity of someone is equally horrific as it is to kill them. And I, I honestly thought coming to the end of this, I was like, this is one floor of the cuckoo's nest. A mm -hmm. And Kern is McMurphy at the end. Only Worf can't pull a chief to put him out of his misery. That, that's where we've landed here. It, it, it's absolutely a tra tragedy of epic proportions that we would land on that as a solution for this problem. I at least McMurphy gets put out of his misery. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. And I think that that was probably our big issue with, with Crossfire also. And in some episodes, too, that we've discussed previously, is that the writers, they really formulate a very tight story and they crescendo our expectations and our emotional attachment to a lot of what the characters are doing in a certain way, but they never really take it that one next step. They never really go to eleven, you know, if you <laughs> Some, will. Sometimes got to turn it up to eleven. Yeah, yeah. I got to start. I got to start throwing some jokes in here. Or it's going to get too <laughs> serious. <laughs> yeah. But it's true. I, I think it's true though. It's that they they just don't commit to I think maybe a decision that would have really upset some viewers at the time. Mm but would have served the story in its legacy the way we're discussing it now. Yeah. Like if, if they did what we believe would have served the story better, it would have just turned into even a stronger discussion and debate about who has the right to terminate identity. Yeah. Yeah. Without choice. Yeah. That's the biggest issue right now is that even Kern was like, he didn't know his last thing that he remembered was, Passing out drunk, if you can even remember that. Yeah, that right. was the last. That was his last memory. Right, right. And then he wakes up. Well, obviously he won't remember. He's a completely different. He person. doesn't and wake people, up. Kern doesn't wake up. Uh, yes, you're right. Exactly. Rodek right. wakes up. Rodek wakes up. Blank slate. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's just oh yeah. wow. But I guess the one thing that we haven't really, uh, and maybe this is something that the listeners can chime in on, you know, on Mission Log on Facebook or on Twitter. Uh, or on our website. Here's a question. What if Kern's original personality was never truly erased and it started to redevelop? What happens then? Oh. Then, uh, yeah. 
I, I, I don't even want to go there. Not now, but I think this is a great question for our listeners uh, because that is a whole other can of worms. That is a whole other show. Maybe that'll become a supplemental. <laughs> I, I have a um, one last thought. Yeah. It's a performance more than a thought, John. Okay, cool. Lay it on us. So when I was thinking about this episode, I was thinking about the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. Sure. And there was the performance of Gethsemane, who arguably I think that Ian Gillian is the finest performance of that particular song. That's just me. I know that I'm right, but you know, so you can say whatever you want to say. But even more important would be William Shatner's interpretation of this particular scene. So mm. I would like to leave the listeners with this particular sentiment from Jesus Christ Superstar as performed by William Shatner. I only want to say, if there is a way, take this cup away from me, for I don't want to taste this poison. Feel it burn me. I have changed. I am not as sure as when we started. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Mission Log is part of the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Visit us at podcast.roddenberry.com to enjoy the entire family of podcast entertainment, including Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam! Shabam! If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. For more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Bar Association. That's all for the Sons of Moog. I hope the Sons of Moogie don't cause this much trouble. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.